Welcome to this episode of Raising Resilience. I'm Pam Ressler, and today I'm pleased to be joined by my friend and colleague, Kate Nicholson, who's a civil rights attorney, a nationally recognized expert on the American with Disabilities Act, a patient advocate and activist. You may have read some of Kate's pieces in the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, or seen interviews with her in the national media. Her work with pain and opioids has gained her further attention as she's recently been given a grant to launch the National Pain Advocacy Center and has been appointed to a working group reviewing the guidelines for opioids by the Board of Scientific Advisors of the CDC. Welcome, Kate. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Pam. It's a pleasure to be having coffee with you today. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, my, my cup is full here. I can't wait for this Mine conversation. Too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The second cup of the morning. Um, exactly. I, I just, you know, you are one of the first people I thought of when I um, launched this podcast several months ago um, because of both your professional as well as personal experience with resilience. Um, obviously, you've been a well-known attorney for a number of years, and I know that um, you life kind of threw you a bit of a curveball many years ago and changed the course of uh, perhaps your advocacy or maybe um, your resilience. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this work, of, especially around pain and advocacy? Sure. Um, so I was already working um, at the United States Department of Justice as an attorney. Uh, it has a civil rights division, and I was working in that. I, I started there right out of my clerkship after law school. And I was working actually in the office that enforces the Americans with Disabilities Act, which had just uh, become effective. And I was uh, at my office one day on a Sunday afternoon because I had a, a court deadline uh, typing away on a document that I was due to court um, when my back started to burn really badly. It felt a bit like acid was eating my spine. And pretty quickly, um, my muscles started to clamp down and I ended up in a full body seizure and a face plant on the floor. Um, and then after that, I was unable to uh, sit or stand or, or walk more than a couple feet with a mobility aid for much of the next 20 years. So I ironically was working as a disability rights lawyer and myself became disabled. Um, and uh, that, um, but, but the nice thing of the, you know, the opportunity in that was that I was working in an office that was willing to accommodate me. And so I was able to continue to work and function. I had to argue cases from a reclining folding lawn chair or uh, conduct negotiations uh, using video teleconferencing, which this was in the early 90s, so that was a, a new thing to do. Um, but I was able to continue to, you know, um, have a, a pretty full life despite these very difficult circumstances. Wow. You know, it, it is rather ironic, isn't it, that you became a bit of an accidental pain advocate. You'd been advocating for so many other types of, of disabilities through your career. Yeah. And um, it became personal. Um, when we talk about resilience, um, 
what does that mean to you? And how do you see resilience as fitting into your story um, and the folks that you work with? Um, I think resilience for me uh, is the ability to thrive uh, despite sort of adversity or difficult circumstances. Um, but, I, but it, you know, one of the things that I think is really important to keep in mind um, is that although it's partly about what's inside of us, you know, whether someone's flexible or optimistic um, or purpose-driven, um, and I would say I was probably all of those things, um, a lot of it is uh, about what we, what we receive from the outside as well. So um, it's really about resources, I think. So I, I've done some talks on resilience and, um, you know, I've learned that factors like whether someone gets sick leave or how soon insurance money comes in after a natural disaster or, you know, having stable housing or access to food or even whether a group is subjected to discrimination, whether we feel like we're treated justly affects our resilience. Um, and so I would say that though I was thrown, certainly thrown a curveball and it was very difficult. Um, I also was fairly privileged to be working in an office. I didn't lose my job, you know, that would accommodate me. I had access to good health insurance. I had a good community around me um, to support me. Um, and all of those things really matter. And I think it's so important to think about that, especially in times of COVID-19 when we're seeing in pretty glaring life or death terms, just how uh, social determinants of health or health disparities uh, affect people that, that, you know, many people of color, people with disabilities, older Americans are suffering quite disproportionately, even though we're all at some risk. Um, so uh, I, I just think it's important to underscore that, that, that that's part of the thing, because whenever you're talking from your personal story, there's, you know, there can be the danger of, you know, uh, elevating one individual at the expense of the group or, or letting us off the hook for interrogating systems that can be causing a lot of the problems for people. That's so important. I, I really like that um, distinct, distinction that you make between perhaps our internal resources of resilience and so important, the external factors that um, <laughs> affect how we can bounce back or thrive, as, as you said. And certainly um, right now, as, as you alluded to with COVID-19, we're seeing that stark reminder that no matter how internally resilient one is, if you don't have the resources, the access, um, the support um, that goes along with the, the social determinants of health that we now recognize, um, it really is very difficult to be able to navigate um, a crisis, whether that's health or, or natural disaster, et cetera. So uh, yeah, I think that's an important thing to recognize that there are kind of those two pillars of resilience, external as well yeah. as internal. And um, the external are much more of a systems change than um, I think we've given it credit for. Often we hear about resilience as, you know, you, somebody who is strong has grit pulling themselves up by their bootstraps uh, that can only right. go so far right um and absolutely and so I really love absolutely. how you've kind of you know uh, called us out on that and also how we can weave those together so 
perhaps that gives us another point of how do we weave together what society needs to do or um, can help us do with building resilience and what we can do ourselves when we find ourselves in those life-changing times. And we all are going to have what I call our personal 9-11s. Um, something right. is going to um, throw us a curveball, um, knock us down. And um, so how do we work with that, both in a bigger systems place and also personally? Well, I think in a systems way, we need to more strongly advocate for, you know, social supports and change, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that, you know, we're in a moment in which everyone, to one degree or another, has experienced um, what I like to call the social theory of disability, which is the idea that it, <clears throat> the way that we organize our society in terms of who's included and who's excluded is far more important than the limitations that might be imposed by someone's impairment. So, you know, whether we have ramps, whether we have stairs, um, but also whether we allow people to work um, remotely. I mean, this has been a big issue for people with disabilities for years. And now I think everyone has had um, the experience of isolation, the experience of, you know, having to do something in a new and different way. Um, and that may, I hope, capture the public imagination for making broader changes um, to some of these structures. I think that's a great point because COVID has brought us all a bit into the world that many people with chronic illness have been living in for um, a long time. And it's been rather invisible to the rest of us. And I think right. with the, the isolation, the self-isolation, the physical distancing, the uh, fear of perhaps getting sicker or um, by going outside your small bubble, um, I think we all in some way are experiencing um, the difficulties. And I'm very hopeful. I, I hope that we will all take this as a bit of a, a learning experience and saying, how can we make it easier for people yeah. to connect who can't physically um, be out and about, um, just like we've all experienced these last six months. Um, right. Where that goes, and I, I also, think design thinking, right? We, we, we don't know where it's going to go. Right. We need to, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, but I think the world is changing. And, and one of the lessons of sort of disability and accommodation is that, you know, a, a higher degree of, of um, responsibility is put on a business when they're already in the process of altering their, their business, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, when something is already in flux, when we're reimagining the workplace, when we're reimagining, you know, our society, because I do think there will be permanent changes that come out of this, um, that's an easier time also to bring in accommodation um, yeah. and make these changes. We're, we're all in a more flexible, resilient moment in that sense. Um, um, but I also think that, it, you know, for maybe, you know, I, I worked in the HIV crisis, um, I, you know, and I think that in the past and also now in the opioid crisis uh, or overdose crisis, there is a tendency to be concerned about public health, but other it, you know, we're able to sort of sequester it off a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, it's happening to other people. And I think 
one of the things about this particular um, virus is that we're all potentially, even though we're not equally at risk, we're all potentially at risk. And so I think it puts public health in a, in a new light for people. I'm not sure everyone really has um, appreciated the value of looking at things through a public health lens, um, and this may shift that as well. I'm hopeful that it will. That's a, that's a really good point because I, I do think that um, certainly in the U.S. our thinking around healthcare um, has been one of autonomy of our individual health and rarely have we looked at um, a community's health and perhaps right. we are shifting a bit but that's how our, our whole system is structured how our payment system is structured etc on the individual and so if yep. we start to consider this differently and i agree with you i think that this is um a turning point, um, a time then we do need to reassess because um, it can't just be about the individual and it needs to be um, a, a broader, thinking broadly about health as it is a community, as it is a, a, a town, as it is a smaller um, subset. How do we do better? How do we make it healthier um, and not just yeah. one person after another? I think that also then we Absolutely. can talk, yeah, and we can talk about, you know, that's really building resi resilience in the community. And then it is. we can um, work at the same time with building resilience in the individual, which may be different. Um, and the tools that we use may be very different, but it all um, circles back to how do we raise up um, our ability to navigate these incredible challenges. And I know right. that you certainly have done that. Um, and as you move through your pain experience, um, where you really saw that need um, also was in um, opioids and how uh, chronic pain patients um, were suffering. Um, and yeah really putting your voice where you saw an incredible need. And I commend you for, for that. I think when we talk about um, internal resilience, we, talk, we need to talk about, you know, what keeps somebody who has been just really bombarded with significant challenges to keep them engaged or keep them curious yeah. or keep them moving. Um, how did you do that for yourself? And what suggestions do you have for others who may be finding themselves in that place? Sure. Well, I, you know, I think chronic pain does pose, pose special problems when it comes to resilience because the intensity and duration of the negative stimulus matters. So if you're in pain, you know, all the time, um, that it's easy for the brain to become overwhelmed. Um, but I also think um, that for me, one of the main things um, I would say that I think is tr true for, for anyone in building resilience that was important was um, reaching out and maintaining my social ties. Um, I think that the people around us matter. Um, and that makes sense in a very practical way um, in terms of, you know, having someone who can help you take a shower if you need help or, or you know, um, get food um but it also matters emotionally because chronic pain is really um 
I would say an assault on intimacy. It's, uh, it's um, just the existential state of being in pain is isolating. Uh, people can't see it. They can't feel it. Even if they know you're suffering, they are not experiencing what you are. Um, and shared experience is part of how we, in, you know, engage and enjoy the world together. So I think it's really important, though, to, to have those, um, you know, those supports um, to continue to. So I remember when I first, um, the day that my pain started, I actually had been hiking uh, with friends in the Shenandoah Mountains, and about three weeks into it, when I was in bed, um, my friends sort of came back and brought, they went for a hike, and then they brought, you know, sort of flowers and leaves from the path and food for a meal and sort of brought the mountains back to me, you know, sort of told me about mm -hmm. their day. Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, living, um, you know, to the extent you can um, in the same life, uh, even if it's changed, um, is, is really important. And I think those, those ties um, really, really matter. Um, I mean, it, this is also a problem for a lot of people with disabilities right now who are losing access to frontline workers who were helping them yes. and who may not have sufficient PPEs, and that's put them at risk of being transferred to group care settings. And given, you know, how... Um, given how, you know, up to 40% of the deaths are, are from sort of congregate living situations, I think that's the last place any of us would want to be transferred now. So, you know, I think social ties for me were really important, and I think they're important for practical as well as emotional reasons. But also, um, I uh, am a very purpose-driven person, and so being able to continue to do the work that I have done uh, in meaningful ways was really important. And I also had good role models because I was working with other attorneys who had yeah. disabilities, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, what was special about them? I was a little odd because I couldn't use a wheelchair, so I couldn't get around, but it, um, it you know, so it posed some sort of unique problems, but in, in, in a very real sense, I wasn't that different from a lot of the people around me. That's true. You had um, a very accommodating work environment. Um, you were able to find support with people who understood about uh, disabilities. Mm -hmm. Also, I know that art has been important for you. Can you talk a little bit about how that may have played into your resilience and how it continues to this day? Sure. I mean, there were actually two sort of interesting surprises for me um, about building resilience in pain. Um, and they were things that were not part of my experience before. I mean, one of the things that kept me engaged was being able to do what I was doing and, and maintain to some degree the life that I had before. But of course, my life had changed. And, um, you know, the two things that really changed for me were both, you know, be becoming an avid meditator um, and, and getting involved in art. And with art, it, um, it just came sort of out of, out of nowhere. I was um, journaling because I always figured I would probably want to write about the experience. And um, someone had brought me a sunflower, and I just sort of decided to draw it. I don't know why. Um, and it turned out I could draw it pretty well with my ballpoint pen and my notebook. Um, and I think part of that was because I had slowed down enough to really look at the world around me. I had been moving pretty quickly before that, and drawing is really about seeing. Um, and so I started to draw. And the other thing that I noticed when I was doing that was that I could have been, you know, thoroughly drained because pain is very draining from the work that I was doing, um, the sort of very logical legal work. And um, 
And then I could pick up a pen and draw and a whole new uh, source of energy would be open to me. It was really using, you know, a different part of my mind that hadn't been fatigued. So that was really a gift um, as well. And then pretty quickly, I became um, interested in other people's art, the, the work of people who have been dedicating their, their lives to, to, um, to creating art. And so I, everything was online, like all the museums, um, courses. And so I spent a lot of time learning about contemporary art. And that has continued to feed me. I collected art that you know, was meaningful to me, um, that maybe conveyed some of the uh, feelings that I couldn't about pain. Um, and uh, I've been on the board of several museums now and even have founded an art nonprofit when I moved to, to Colorado. So it has continued to be a great source of resilience and nurturance for me. And the funny thing is that, and I, this is, we, you and I talked about this, um, I, uh, uh, since you know the person who, who's done this research, but I discovered pretty recently that there has been research done showing that just looking at art can actually relieve pain um, by your, your colleague Ian. And so, um, but it, it's not just in, he, he's done work in California and the United States, but um, I started seeing articles uh, about in Montreal about doctors prescribing museum visits and in, and in the UK as well. So um, I think there was something to it um, uh, that was, also, was both pain relieving and also that awakened a new passion in me um, and a new love. It was sort of like falling in love with art. It wasn't just through my head. Um, it was uh, sort of through my heart. And I think that uh, it's lovely to have when you're very limited, it's, it's especially welcoming to have, uh, an, you know, new windows, new avenues open to you. And art for me was a very important one of those. That's, that's great. And I'll put some links to some of the work that is being done around uh, visual art and, and pain and also other chronic illnesses. It's really fascinating. And I think, you know, we don't understand enough about um, the brain and how it processes um, pain as well as beauty. Um, and I right. think that also using a language that is not a written language, but one that um, seems to speak to us differently is extremely powerful. And so whether that's yeah. art, music, et cetera, I think that needs to be part of our healthcare team's repertoire. Um, I agree. I agree. And I actually think you're hit on it. It's partly because it, 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 it's sort of, it isn't abstract like language, right? It speaks exactly. through, exactly. It, it, it is sensorily received in the same way that pain and illness are sensorily received. Exactly. So I think there is something to that. Um, I do too. And I think that it also is interesting. There have been studies um, over the years of the type of art that we choose when we are under extreme stress or pain and when we can think more abstractly as it happens when disease settles, um, we're not as acutely in a stress response. Um, our ability to um, take in more abstract art is increased. So it's, it's also interesting to kind of to see how that evolves as somebody's um, uh, course of- Oh, that's evolves. fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating because I have I have a real mix of abstract and and not and but mm -hmm. I also as someone who was an extrovert who became isolated I do have a lot of 
very unusual photographs of people though too yes. or, or images of people um because i think that's what i was missing um yeah, yeah. in my life you know but i also have abstract art and I, i'd have to look back and see when at I what point you were choosing at different, yeah. different times yeah exactly yeah exactly. so i think this is a really cool thing to kind of talk about how people can become more resilient kind of in what speaks to them the other thing that um I really picked up on when you were describing the art was, and also the process of, of living with chronic pain, that you slowed down to notice the world around you. And that yeah. is really what I work with, with clients around, with is, which is mindfulness and how do we get there. It could be through meditation, right. through art. But it has to do with not stopping, but slowing down enough to have some space to really observe. And that's not part of our normal way of being in our very fast-paced society. So it feels almost a little... Um, uh, backward or, or you know we we, we right. feel that we should be right. moving at a faster pace and somehow if we allow this slower slower pace we begin to notice things and that's not all bad that's actually an incredible no, silver it, lining I think it is and I think there are real riches there I mean I, I was moving pretty quickly before that and I think by nature still do um, but um, and that's you know, also you talk about mindfulness. I mean, meditation was a huge thing for me yeah. as well that came kind of spontaneously out of just like living in pain. Um, and I am, you know, type A, you know, I mean, I remember I went to a, when I started doing better, I went to a meditation retreat that was a silent retreat and my family still don't believe that I didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, you? No. So um, it was that, that was something very outside my nature, yeah. I would say, but yeah. it's now become hugely important to me. Um, and I do more of a body-based meditation, but it, mm -hmm. it, the point is just to be, to be present, to be mindful, mm -hmm. um, to turn inward a bit. Um, and I think it can foster actually um, a healthier life in a fast-paced world. Um, and, and of course, we've seen such a, you know, we're ta when you talk about our world, we're talking about a very Western uh, construct. I mean, there, there are countries, you know, for whom meditation is, is central. Um, I would so, say not just a Western sure. construct, an American construct, because right, I see right, in, in, absolutely. in, you know, European societies, many of them have um, uh, traditional pauses um, built into their day-to-day, -day, and whether we call it meditation or, you know, a two-hour lunch, um, it's very different or than... August vacation, a month's vacation in the summer. That's right? correct. Where that's, just ever, that everybody gets. Yeah. That's yeah. correct. So that's I think it's a very American um, uh, issue around this slowing down and feeling somehow that we're not productive. And what I found for many of my clients is it feels scary to slow down because we're holding on to whatever we still have of ourselves. And so if their right. type of work doesn't allow for the slowing down, that's a really hard place to be, to, to try to be resilient. And, um, right. And that's, that, a, that's a really good point. Cause I did have the ability, you know, again, I had a job where I could, mm -hmm. you know, I had a housing situation and enough stability to also take those breaks. Um, right. Right. I well, think this, that is very hard for people. 
Yeah, I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about, you know, kind of these two pillars of um, the environment, the external and the internal for building and raising resilience. And I think certainly that plays into it too, the societal expectations of what we can do to slow down and what feels um, uh, non-aligned or uh, misaligned with our expectations. So I think that's another yeah. place we can all work on to, uh, to consider for ourselves and others. What are we really, um, what are we spinning our wheels for? And are there ways that we can create these pauses, these time, as you said, the slowing down to actually notice the world around you um, within our day? But, uh, we're right, coming, and I think, yeah. I think the part of it is, well, it's partly a dance, right? I mean, it's a dance mm -hmm. between sort of acceptance and, and moving forward, and everyone has to find their own balance. I mean, for me, I, uh, I've, I'm not a very balanced person by nature. That's not my, I like to, like, push things and move things and make things happen. And um, I've had to kind of figure out a way that works that I've sort of decided is kind of like a, a grasshopper. <laughs> I rest and I leap and I rest and I leap. Like I don't, that's where my balance comes in. It's not in a, I keep everything at the same pace and find this perfect, you know, ease. It's more, you know, I think we, we, we have to figure out what works, you know, for our jobs, for our personalities, um, you know, uh, yeah. there are different ways of, of achieving pause and achieving balance. Yeah, I think it's it's never a one size fits all. And oftentimes when I talk to folks who say, well, I can't meditate, I've tried it before, maybe we need a different type of pause um, in their lives instead of uh, something they've just read in a book, etc. But I love the analogy of the grasshopper. Kate, I'm never going to be able to look at you again in the same way without thinking about a grasshopper. So, <laughs> well, we're coming to the end of the episode, and I could talk to you for hours because um, there's just so much here, so much to talk about. And so I really yeah. want to thank you for for joining me and to sharing your personal and professional expertise and just congratulations on all of the work that you've done and that you continue to do and all of the the benefits that you're giving to us all um, by just your presence well thank you Pam it's very wow. kind I will be adding for those listeners who want to learn more about Kate's work um, I'll be adding links to um, both the the show notes on the podcast as well as on my website and Kate has uh, done a wonderful TED talk a couple of years ago which I will also post the link to that so thanks again Kate it's it's wonderful to talk to you and I'm sure we're gonna have to do some more episodes because there's so much more that I'd um, love to chat with you about so thanks again oh you're so welcome I, I love the work you're doing Pam. Yeah.